Let us pray. God who in creating human nature has wonderfully dignified it and still more wonderfully reformed it, grant that we may become partakers of his divine nature who deigned to partake of our human nature, thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, throughout all ages of ages. Amen. I've handed, I've handed out a piece of paper that says the canon of Old Testament books. I hope that each of you has a copy of that. I have a few extras if we need to. Uh, if we're running out, couples, please share them. Uh, unless you just absolutely have to have one to write on for yourself, in which case it's okay. Uh, before I, I talk about why we have a different Bible, I need, you to, I need to point something out about the canon of the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament has three sections. Uh, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law is the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah, it's called in Hebrew. They're prophets. Now, when you deal with these sections, please understand that the prophets and the writings will vary according to who's doing it. If you want to see an example, look in the beginning of the Orthodox Study Bible, and there's a section which breaks down the Orthodox canon of books, the Roman Catholic canon of books, and the Protestant canon of books. Well, you have the Jewish canon as well, which is a little different. So you need to understand that. So if it doesn't fit your perception of how the book should be, it's okay. So according to the Jewish canon, the, old, the, prof, the prophets are these books, Joshua, Judges, the four books of the kings are what's known as 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Micah, Joel, Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And in some instances in the first century AD, uh, also the Psalms were considered part of the prophetic books, interestingly enough, because the belief was among Jewish sources that King David was himself a sort of prophet. He had prophetic gifts, and therefore the Psalms are treated that way. Uh, so that's, you, you can actually find one verse in the New Testament which bears that out. It says, as in the law, and the, the law of the prophets and the Psalms. Third section is called the writings. And there are two collections of the writings extant at the time of Christ. So that's the first century A.D., in Judea, the writings were from the Hebrew sources, written first and foremost and primarily in Hebrew, uh, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. We tend to think of Chronicles because in the Orthodox Bible, they're in the historical books, but Chronicles in the Jewish canon are in the, are in the writings. Uh, and outside Judea, in the Jewish diaspora, there were those books. Now, this is where they're written in Greek. For the Greek-speaking, most Jews outside of Judea, or what, what the Romans called Palestine, uh, was, was uh, in that area, the, the biblical books were primarily from the Hebrew texts. Outside of that, in the Roman Empire, wherever Jewish communities were, it's called the diaspora, uh, they had extra books in their Greek translations. Uh, and those extra books were 1 Esdras, Tobit, Judith, 
three books of the Maccabees, Wisdom, Syrach, Baruch, the Epistle of Jeremiah, and additional chapters to Esther and Daniel. Actually, if you've ever seen the prayer of Manasseh uh, in some apocryphus, uh, the, the prayer of Manasseh can be found at the end of, I think it's Second Chronicles, one of the Chronicles books. Uh, so it's actually a part of that. In some areas of the Orthodox Church, primarily in Northeast Africa, like Ethiopia, maybe uh, Egypt in the, in the Coptic Church, the Book of Enoch is included uh, in that collection. Uh, and the Book of Enoch is quoted in the New Testament uh, and is referred to. So th there's some scholarly argument now. I love the way scholars always argue about stuff and present. But in any case, there's some scholarly argument now that, that Enoch may have been a part of the canon that was floating around in the church, in the early church. Uh, and that's why it was quoted. Uh, and there's, the arguments are, are very convincing. So in any case, when, you, when I talk about these canons, I want you to see those three collections there. Uh, remember that in, well, I better wait to come back to that, see if I come back to it. Let's talk about what is, what is the word canon? I don't mean C-A-N-N-O-N, -N -N, okay? So don't be thinking artillery if, if, you, if you're hearing that word. It's C-A-N-O-N, -N, it's a Greek word. It means a measure or a rule. The Latin version of it is regula, from which we get regular or regulate or rule or ruler. So you get an idea of measurement. It is, so it's a, it's a measurement. It's the, measure, it's the means by which we measure what's the true content of the Bible, of the faith. Sometimes the Nicene Creed is called in Latin regula fide, the rule of faith. It's not the entirety of the faith, but it's the measurement by the, of the basic things that we need to know uh, as Christians, and we flesh them out. Uh, so the regula fide, the rule, the canon. The canon of the Bible is the determination of what books are included in it. So today for us, the books that are listed as the law, the prophets, the writings of the New Testament are all a part of that. But they're not considered the law and the prophets and the writings. In fact, I think it's wrong to talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament because it's one testament. It's one thing. And so to talk about old and new is, is to get it all wrong. Just like St. Paul's admission about the, his statements in Romans are misunderstood by so many Christians. Uh, and that, that the Old Testament is bad and the New Testament is good. Wrong. It's all one thing. So, but that's another story. I don't want to go there. Uh, so in any case, they're part of the, the law, the prophets, the writings, the New Testament, for lack of better descriptions, all those books are part of the apostolic truth. And we'll look at that when we look at tradition, uh, the lesson on tradition. To be a canonized, to be canonized is to formally accept them as the word of God. So... The Torah, the first five books, were canonized, and there was no official meaning, meeting of, the, of Jewish leaders who got together and said, all right, what books are acceptable and what are not? Uh, it was, by the time it happened, it, was, it had grown on the people, and everybody had come to accept certain things. And so the canon of the Torah uh, is found to be in place no later than 400 B.C., so it probably could have happened earlier than that. It could have been understood by that. And I think some of the texts in the Old Testament would suggest that. 
but we know that no later than 400 B.C. The prophets in Jewish circles were canonized, so to speak, no later than 200 B.C. Now here's one of the keys. The writings were not canonized until 90 A.D. And that was at a formal meeting. So, I'll come back to that. The Bible was originally written, or the Old Testament, in Hebrew, except two books which were written in Aramaic, Esther and Daniel. It's because they were written at a different time than most of the others. So this would suggest many of the others were written much earlier, linguistically. Uh, this is one of the things I like about Bible books. They, have, they often have dual meanings. The meanings of the stories they tell, but also when they were written. So, so you have two things going on. <coughs> For example, Daniel tells stories about what happened to the Jews uh, in the, during the Bab Babylonian captivity between 586 and 539 B.C. But the book was written in the second century B.C. during the struggles with Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek. <laughs> so they use the stories from the past. They tell the stories from the past in order to give a message about how to deal with the contemporary situation. Both of those need to be considered. So Daniel, that's why Daniel winds up in the last part of the canon, the Jewish canon. Translation into Greek of the Old Testament. Remember I said it started out with Hebrew, with some Aramaic. There was never really any successful or intended translation into Aramaic. Most of them were more like paraphrases. But anyway, the story goes that if most of the, if most of the Jewish people outside Palestine were Greek-speaking, then they couldn't even read the Hebrew scriptures. It wasn't available to them. So the story goes that the popular story, and this is debatable historically, but the popular story was that the Greek pharaoh of Egypt, he was one of the descendants of Alexander the Great's, the Ptolemies, uh, wanted to have build a library in Alexandria. And he found out that the Jewish, Jews had a book called the Torah uh, that he didn't have in his library. And even if he did, if it were written in Hebrew, nobody could read it because all the other books were written in Greek. So he wrote to Jewish leaders in Judea and asked them to send translators with copies of the text who would take the text and translate it so he would have copies to put in his library. They sent 70 translators. The 70 translators were each assigned, according to this popular story, were each assigned to go on their own and translate the five books of the Torah and then come back and they'd compare notes. And the story goes that when they came back, all 70 translations were exactly the same. Now, maybe that was story was popularized by Christians. Maybe it was really true for Judaism. If it really did happen that way, uh, it would explain why in many circles of Judaism, the Septuagint was for a long time considered to be miraculous, a miraculous translation the one we use. At the time of Christ, the Bible canon was not the entire Old Testament as we know it. It was the Law and the Prophets. If you want to look it up, look in Acts 26, 22, Luke 16, 29, and 31, 
John 1.45. They'll mention the law and the prophets. And now we might think, ah, oh, it's just a synonym for the, New, for the whole New, Old Testament. But for a Jew of that time, the law and the prophets was understood very specifically. With the use of available writings, the writings were there. They just, nobody had thought, well, these are just extra books that we can use. Nobody thought anything about it. So they're floating around out there. They haven't been canonized. And as I mentioned, the writings collection in Judea was shorter. As the church spread, and if you remember it from the Acts of the Apostles, the church started in Jerusalem and then went out, especially after 49 AD. Started to go out to the extent of the Roman Empire and even beyond. So Thomas went to India, so the story goes. I think Jude was there with him. Wherever they went, the apostles, as St. Paul is shown in Acts, went to Jewish communities first and then went to Gentiles when the Jewish communities didn't respond positively, if they didn't. Since the, since the Jewish communities were Greek-speaking, what Bible did they use if they had the text available? The Greek versions. So when the Christian communities were established, and remember, our Mass is based upon the synagogue service as the Liturgy of the Word. It's drawn from that and from the, the Passover slash uh, temple sacrifice services as, as the Mass part or the canon of the Mass, the consecration. So when they needed the Scriptures to be read, what could they have access to? The Greek versions. So... Because the majority of Christians were outside Judea very early in the first century, uh, they used the longer collection of writings when they used them. Now, it didn't take long then for the longer collection of writings to be uh, associated with Christianity. And let me just backtrack and add you another piece. This is church history stuff, but this is the way it goes. You need to understand why we have this Bible. And this practice of ours goes way, way back. Uh, the, the Jews were an interesting people in terms of the way the Roman Empire dealt with things. Uh, the Romans had a, had a system going, and everybody fit into the system, and everybody was tolerated in certain ways. But the Jews were like, they were like religious misfits. They, they were strange. And we had the, Romans, the Romans had to change all the rules just to deal with them. I mean, for example, everybody else was said, you will sacrifice to, the, to your God, you will sacrifice to the emperor. And the Jews said, we won't sacrifice to any gods. And we won't sacrifice to the emperor. We'll pray for him and we'll offer sacrifice to our God on his behalf, but we won't do it. So the Romans said, okay, that's fine. So they let him go. Well, for the first couple of decades, at least, of, of the, the rise of the church, Christianity, Christians were treated by the Romans as a sect of Judaism. Even, Jews, even the Jewish community thought that Christians were a sect of Judaism. And we see that in Acts, where they took upon themselves to deliberate how they would deal with these people. They dealt with them as heretics in Judaism were due, would be treated in those days. So the Romans saw Christians, just like the Jews did, as a sect of Judaism. In other words, Jews will be treated with the same acceptance. Well, around, roughly around the, the year 60 AD, in the time period of 60 AD, the Jews began to realize these people are not a sect of us. They're somebody else. Uh, and, and right around the same time, the Romans figured it out too. 
So the Romans realize that they're not, if they're not Jews, then we don't have any rules to deal with them, so we're going to have to persecute them or get rid of them. They're a threat to the peace of the empire. It's not surprising then in 68 AD or in the 60s AD is the Neronian persecution, the first persecution of the church. And then it goes on from there. And the entire attitude of the empire changes. So in any case, it was clear that, Jews, that Christians were no longer part of Judaism. Around 90 AD, 30, 25 years after the collapse, the destruction of the temple, there were a series of meetings held by Jewish authorities called the Synod of Jomnia. Now, it's, it wasn't one meeting, but a series of meetings taking place over several years. But a number of things were done. And part of it was, what do we do about these Christians? What do we do about them? And also, one of the ways in which we can help prevent this, so they, they, they used to do prayers that the Christians could not say without compromising themselves. So that was one of the ways they tried to get us out of the synagogues. Make us say these prayers, and if we are compromised, we won't do it. So in any case, one of the things they wanted to do was use and make mandatory the use of the shorter collection of writings. This is, in effect, number one, a canonization, and number two, it excludes that use of the longer collection anywhere, which is what Christians use. The Christians use it. So it was done, and it's, it, it, it's in, in effect, as I mentioned, the canonization of the writings, 90 A.D., in reaction to Christianity by those outside the church. The church, can, Christian just said, who cares? <laughs> it doesn't affect us any. We're going to continue to do what we want to do. So the church continued to use the longer collection. Judaism used the shorter collection. And here's the thing. We don't allow the, anyone outside the church, we saw we, something of this last week, to decide what Bible we use. And the church continued to use a longer collection up until the Protestant Reformation. I mean, even the Roman Catholic Church, in spite of us separating and they're leaving us, really, for all practical purposes, continued to use the longer collection, minus one or two books. And it was not an issue among anybody until the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And only because Martin Luther wanted to do a translation into German and he used the Hebrew canon to do it. And so he came up with a shorter canon. And since then, we all understand the canon of the Old Testament to be the shorter canon. But that's the canon of some outside the church. They don't tell us what's in the Bible. We use the longer canon. And... A lot of this is just sort of for us, but I'll say this. We're only allowed to use specific translations into English. And that is the King James Version, the King James Version 2 or New King James, and the Revised Standard Version or RSV. Why? All of those are post-SISM translations because the scholars who put them together referred back to the Greek texts to get their clarifications uh, and their reliable translations that have been tested and vetted by Orthodox scholars and found to be okay. Yes, sir? You said post or is it post, post. So after the 
translations. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're they're like like modern translations. But if they're going back to the Greek, that would have been before the schism. Yeah, they're going back to the text before the, that. Yes. Uh, let me give you an example of why how this works and why the Greek text is so good. You have a lot of examples like this. This is not the place to go into more detail, but in Isaiah seven fourteen, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The Hebrew word is Alma, a young Jewish woman. A young Jewish woman of that time period would have been virginal. So the Greek translated a Parthenos, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Modern translations try to play that down and go back to the Hebrew, a young woman, so that way they also can have grounds for denying the virgin birth of Christ. So actually the Greek is more accurate, yes sir, and it, it, it captures what the Hebrew implies, but doesn't necessarily say. Around 200 AD, this is another story, around 200 AD, the Hebrew alphabet has no vowels. We can't imagine that in English. But in Semitic languages, it, in Semitic languages it's very easy, the way the words are, the syllables are comprised. And you can pretty much look at a word and, and ascertain what vowel sounds go, are inserted. <coughs> but partly because of problems with Christians and also in matters of interpretation, Jewish authorities came up with a series of marks called the Masoretic Text, little marks over and under the letters which tell you what vowels to insert. And we know for a fact that in a couple of instances, they actually inserted different vowels to make the people say different words. So they were manipulating the text, even though the claim is that there was no manipulation. Now that's 200 AD, roughly, that's far as we know. Sort of like canonization of the first two sections. We I had read, read somewhere that Justin Martyr, I read a quote from Justin Martyr, one of the Justins, talking about the Jews are, are changing the text and this is wrong and things like that, that they were challenging it even back then. Yeah, yeah. While they're doing their new translation. Well, and anytime you insist that in Judaism, both the Hebrew and the Greek were allowed, uh, and so to say only the Hebrew was was to impose an, a thought process, an idea on Judaism that had not been accepted. Prior to the fall of the temple, there were really five sects in Judaism. We think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but there were also the Essenes, uh, who were priestly and almost monastic, and the Hellenistic Jews and the Christians. And when you analyze what they believed and held, you'll find that the Essenes, the, the, the Hellenistic Jews and the Christians all pretty much held the same doctrines and the hell, understanding of reality. And it dates back to a period that predates the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So anyway, that's, that's another story. Uh, so, 
So because translations are such an issue, uh, scholars or the church has said only certain translations match up. I've, I've watched in my lifetime, I've watched the, it used to be in all Protestant churches in the United States, the King James Version was the Bible that St. Paul used. <laughs> it was written in 1604, by the way, translated in 1604. <laughs> by the way, it was translated in 1604 and it included the, the books that are excluded. It included them in a separate section called the Apocrypha, but it included them. Even Martin Luther did that as recently as the 19th century. Luther's German Bible included those books yeah. in that separate section. Yeah, yeah, they put them in there because you can't argue that the early church used them. I, I was just looking at one of the canons or one of the can councils on the scriptures, and it had a list of these books may be used. didn't have the complete New Testament, but it did include, I think, at least three books of these, these collections in there, which... And if you read in the early church fathers, whenever they refer to it, they always say, Scripture says, and they use the book. So you, you got a good idea of what they, how they understood it. So, in any case, the King James Version, uh, because the King James Version understood the canon with all the other books, and it sought to use the Greek to help it balance the translations to get a better translation, uh, it was the scholarly work that went into it, in spite of the fact that somebody outside the church was pretty good, so we don't have anything in English written by us, so this is the next best, best thing. Not every translation is good. And when I first came in, started noticing these things many years ago, it was the King James Version. When the RSV came out, people actually, in many circles in America, burned them because they thought they were heretical. Well, then the church found out sometimes the RSV is actually more accurate than even the King James. Uh, so then the, the, the RSV was popular for a long time. And then in the 70s, it was the Living Bible, many of you may remember, which wasn't a Bible, it was a paraphrase. But it had a lot of things really wrong theologically. So that fell out of use, and now the New International Version is the one. Everybody uses that. We've had the same thing all this time. Yes, sir? Fathers, you said... In the Orthodox Church in the West, the only um, translations for use are the King James and RSV. RSV? Or, or the New King James? Yeah. You know, I'm just curious, if we have Bibles now, like the English Standard Version, where we have, you know, multitudes of more Greek manuscripts than the translators in England ever had access to. Um, you know, so they say. Well, <laughs> I'm just curious, because it, it seems that we have, I mean, I know there's a hundred and 1,000 English translations, but it seems like there's other modern translations that are looking back to not just a Hebrew canon, but a wider source of documents. There are, but when you're, when you're outside the church, as we've seen in past lessons, and we continue to see this, we see from outside the picture. We don't see with the eyes of the church, and therefore we cannot understand it. For, well, I'm going to touch on this next week, but... Uh, for example, we understand what Christ meant by this is my body, this is my blood. We understand that in the church. A lot of people outside the church don't understand it. Ulrich Zwingli said, that's not meant to be taken seriously. After all, if this were really taken seriously with all the masses that have been said from the beginning of time until now, they would have used up his body and blood. That's a worldly perspective. 
So we see differently, and what the church has done is looked at these translations and said, what do we do about this? And these are okay. They're not ideal, but they're okay. They probably have the fewest mistakes, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Orthodox sources have, have looked at these and, and approved them. And that's the way we go in the church. I was just curious, because I know the original King James here, does our translations like donkey centaurs, which is because they didn't know, yeah. based on the Hebrew, what to even translate. So yeah, single horned animals, so they, yeah. they used the minute, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and King James also translated a lot of idioms literally. Right. They didn't, they, which is one of the strengths of it. You, you get it, you know, like in, in the. The, the Jews didn't really have a, a term for, like we have for like sexual intercourse. And so it says in there, he went in unto her and knew her. Well, knew or know was used as an, an idiom for engaging in sexual intercourse among the Hebrews. So King James just translated it literally. <laughs> and, so, and, and some of the Bible translations that came out later tried to it, translate it by content or the idea behind it. That's where they take live, start taking liberties when they start doing that. So, <clears throat> in any case, if you have Bibles at home that are other translations than those, you don't have to get rid of them, but I'd say don't treat them with authority. Uh, use your Orthodox study Bible. If you don't have one, get one. Uh, so, in response to this, the answer to everybody else is we don't really have a different Bible. We have a longer Old Testament, or a longer Bible, if you will, which is the one the church has always used, which is attested by the fact that the two Christian bodies, the Orthodox and the Roman Catholics, who can track their institutional lineage back to the apostles, only two of us can do that, and Rome has deviated from the doctrine, but they can trace their, international, their, their uh, institutional lineage back to the apostles. Both of us are still using it. That ought to say something. The two largest Christian bodies in the world are still using this translation or this version. Yes, ma'am. Question. How come we have Ethiopian Orthodox and the Coptic Orthodox have a longer, even longer canon than the Bobina? Well, it's believed. We're not sure. But it's believed that, like the Enoch, the book of Enoch, was, was before the New Testament was collected. It took years for the New Testament to be accepted. And it, there's, there's no activity, formal activity of canonization in, in orthodoxy for the, new, for the Bible. It just, just grew. It just happened. And it's believed that the, the Ethiopians and the Coptic, I think the Coptic might have, and maybe elsewhere, that the Book of Enoch may have floated around with the New Testament books, and so, or the, some of the Old Testament books, I don't remember which, uh, and was accepted in some circles as scripture. Sort of like in some of the churches of the early centuries, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Nicodemus, and a few other of what are known as uh, uh, Gnostic Gospels, which are denials of the faith, uh, also floated around were considered scriptural. They had to be they had to be rejected formally, and they were. So anyway, I hope that answers your question. Uh, the the Ethiopians still use the Book of Enoch in their in their uh, lectionary, and really some of it's pretty cool. <laughs> you know? 
So anyway, we don't have, we have, we're using the Bible the church always used. So keep that answer in mind. We don't really have a different Bible. We have the longer Old Testament, which is the one the church has always used. And the evidence is in the fact that the two largest Christian bodies and two oldest in the world uh, both still use it. That ought to say something. Now to ourselves. Answers to ourselves. Not any Bible or translation will suffice, as we've seen. We, and this is part of being orthodox. Not only is it, well, I, you know, it's not a matter. Well, I don't agree, and I'll use whatever I want. Well, good, go for it. Uh, but in orthodoxy, we're under the authority of the church. And we put ourselves under that authority. And that's a part of the spirituality of orthodoxy. We're not smarter than the church. I assure you, we aren't. So we need not to get that mindset. Otherwise, we may be getting a Bible translation that we like, and we may think we're growing from using it, but the fact of the matter is we've set ourselves outside the church. And spiritually, we're not going to arrive where we want to arrive. So we don't want to go there. Adjust ourselves to the fact this is the Bible the church has always used. Use only the Bible or translation authorized, which I've already said. And get to know it by experience. That is, we have to read it. We have to use it. Can't just get the book out and hold it up and say, well, this is, you know, this is my Bible. I don't know what's in it, by God, but it's my Bible. <laughs> we don't want to go there. That's, use it, because it'll transform our lives. This is getting into the tradition of the church, which we'll see the next time. What is tradition? I don't know about y'all, and since y'all are younger, but I've lived in a time when many circles of American Christianity said, tradition, you're denying the Bible. No, <laughs> we're talking about something that's even greater than that, of which it is a part. Anyway, more questions? Yes, sir? So really, you know, it's just a play on words, but we don't use a different Bible. We have the Bible, and you're using a different Bible. Yeah. That's the question we should pose to them is, why are you using a different Bible? Yeah, we might want to turn the question. Put, put, return the question to them to make them defend something that's new. This is old. You're new. You have to defend why you changed. You know, we're not using a different Bible. You're using... You know, I, won't, I don't want to say it, but I'm looking at it going, in my head, you're using the wrong Bible, right? You're using the abridged version. Yeah, the abridged version. <laughs> <that's> <laughs> I had a parishioner in Wichita Falls who, who was a teacher, and, and the Gideons would come around every year wanting to put Bibles in her classroom, and she refused, and they couldn't understand why. And they, they heard she was a Christian, they couldn't understand why. She said, because you're not using the Bible of the early church, and I don't want that in here. If I'm going to have the Bible, I want the kids to have the real thing. Oh, wow. So. just getting on me about, you know, you're so close, you're almost Christian. <laughs> I, you know, I, I only believe the Bible, and what's there? And I was, you know, bringing up these topics, and I went, okay, 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 fine. Which Bible do you use? And he went, what? <laughs> and I went, what Bible do you Wait, use? Wait, what? Well, this Bible right here. Well, that's not the full Bible. And he went, no, I, I just believe what's here. I go, correct but you're not reading the entire Bible that was created by the church. You're like, 
Well, I uh, in, in pretty much shut down Never heard of it. I'm like, you need to do some research into history. Well, let me, let me provide spot on and all of this, but there's something I want to really under underlay in this thing. The information we receive today in the subject matter helps us to communicate something very simple. No one's ever going to come into orthodoxy because we tell them they're wrong. <laughs> so you got to watch how we present this. If we're not in humility and love and simply, if they ask us, why do you have these extra books? Now we can give them something but don't take them to task. Let them hear. Bishop John said this perfectly to me once. He said, if I bake you a cake on your birthday because I love you and I offer it to you in the best way that I can, my job's done. My job has nothing to do with whether you like the cake or not. In other words, lay it before them. Lay the truth before them. Let them go. Say, and if they, I, I'm not going to engage. I never engage in an argument. Ever. When it starts getting argumentative because they're wanting to prove us wrong, right. my job's done for the day. At that point, I tell them very sincerely, hey, I hear you. We've got some difference of opinion. That's okay. I get it. Why don't you just go? I gave you some information. You go look it up, research it. We'll just leave it at that. Don't engage in arguments. Present the truth lovingly. Because I promise you that I've said it before, if their heart's not ready, you're trying to plant seed in concrete, and that doesn't go well. No. Thank you, Father. Father James, at the very beginning of your talk, you spoke of the, the word, the words that were spoken and passed from generation to generation. And when we have friends, you know, they question, oh, just the Bible, you know, well, what about tradition? Well, the thing is that it took so long to get anything written down that once you get it written down, then it's, it's more permanent, so to speak. So that our tradition, you know, most of us come from a solar scriptura background, but when you open the world of God up, to prophets, and the prophets also speak, and the holy fathers of the church through time, because these books that were written, they were written here, you know, they were collected and put down, collected and put down, all this time passed, and all of these prophecies and stories just carried on through generations, so that the prophets are still with us today, and the holy men are still with us today, and we still have people revealing God today. So, you know, we can use the Bible, but we still have to, this speaks to the fact that we should study the holy men and women that have something to say about God. And that's part of the tradition. Let's, yes, we'll look at that next time. Uh, because really, the, what about tradition? Well, as we have a different lesson that we're going to look at a few weeks, a week beyond the uh, Bishop John, I believe, uh, the question of, is it biblical? That's not a question for us. It's, is it apostolic? Does it go back to the apostles and the faith they passed on, which would include being biblical? Uh, and the tradition includes 
that notion of biblical includes everything in the Bible. So it's not that we don't believe in the Bible. <laughs> it's just we have a different way of looking at it. Remember, it's, it's like, remember what I said the first lesson, it's looking at God or looking at the image of Jesus from out here in this way or seeing him and turning around and seeing what's out there using his eyes. And tradition does that. And same with Scripture. We, we come to the canon of the, of the Scriptures. We want to take what the church has given us because it has so much to offer us. And we don't want to miss anything. I guarantee you we don't miss anything. I, you know, I've told you before, I've had so many times when I, when I thought this church has made a mistake in its translation, I got them. I remember I thinking that, I, I've got them. You know, I studied Judaism, I know this, I've got them. And then it turned out later on, lo and behold, they were right. Guess who was wrong? This fool up here. So I'm sorry, I'm not calling you all fools, but I, I think I'm pretty, pretty much representative of most of humanity. Uh, so in any case, uh, we want to be a part of that and grasp that and, and, and glean that. Yes, ma'am. That's, well, and that's the thing, it's hard to even, when we say this, we're not saying this other than to give us simple answers to use to respond to it. Uh, but we're not trying to prove ourselves right and to prove other people wrong. But we need to know what the church says. We can be orthodox and be thinking like people in the world. And how does that differ from having the mindset of the world? What, what about, is Jesus God incarnate or isn't he? Is he or isn't he? The world says no. We say yes. That's the difference. That's the starting point. Is the Trinity real or is it not? Do we believe the Trinity or do we not? If we're in the church, we do. If we don't believe it, we're not in the church. And we're thinking like the people in the world. It's that simple. Let's own up to it. We can go anywhere we want and do anything we want and believe whatever we want. We can. Nobody's stopping us. But if we're going to be here, this is what we have to hold. That's the way it is. That's just the way it is. And the first step toward moving in to this in all its fullness and gleaning what it has to offer us is to accept that truth. What do you wish of the church? Faith. What does faith give you? Eternal life. Not, don't think of eternal pie in the sky down the road, but entering into eternity, which is God. That's what the church has to offer us. And we have to do it the church's way. I did my undergraduate degree in history, and believe me, there's a way to study history and plenty of ways not to study history. And most of what you get is passing as history is passing as history, but it's not really. So we want to come into the church and really be Orthodox. As St. Ignatius of Antioch said, that I may not just be called a Christian, but found to be truly one. He was martyred for that, by the way. <laughs> so, yes, sir. 
so what what is the what is the main reason that the Protestants, the Protestant Bibles, got rid of the Septuagint? Is it the tradition I heard it was because they went back to, to Jerome's translation of the Hebrew because they were thinking because he had gone and seen the Hebrew, oh, that must be the older one because it's Hebrew, not the Greek one, not understanding that that was the new rewritten Hebrew. Is that the reason why they, they did that? <coughs> the same reason Jerome did? It's like, oh, that must be the original because it's in Hebrew. And so we're going to take that and we're going to leave this apocrypha stuff over here yeah, I, you know, it's been so long since I've been a part of that. 30 years or so I've been Orthodox. I hardly remember. <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer that question. I've, I've studied that recently. Okay. Um, like I mentioned, Martin Luther included those books in a third section called the Apocrypha, placed between the Old and New Testament. Um, that was published in Bibles among Protestants up until the 19th century. And it was the 19th century... European Protestants on the European continent who began to insist that the Bible should be published without those books. And so it's it's a 19th century thing, even though those books were separated out, they were still published under the same cover. It was a 19th century development among Protestants to publish a, a volume of Old and New Testament without those things. So it's that recent that has been removed from view. And removed from the, the a lot, a, a lot has changed. Well, some of it was also a practical issue because um, it, as a, a missionary movement in in shipping, printing and shipping Bibles, which was still fairly expensive at that point, taking that third section out meant that they could send more Bibles to their missionaries on the field. Oh, really? So there was also a practical. Of course, see, from the Orthodox perspective, that would never even be considered. <laughs> See how easy it is for something like that to happen for reasons like that, and then suddenly that's the way everybody thinks, and suddenly the faith has been altered, and the way we approach it's been altered because of that. That's what we don't want to do. Which is also true with Vatican II and Rome. Not talking about the Bible, but talking about the liturgy itself. Yeah. When you make any changes to the experience of God and all that has been kept, you are changing their experience of God. You know, entirely. It's very dangerous. Maybe even shutting it off. Absolutely. Anyway, all right. Next time, tradition. Thank you. Thank you, Father.